this here is the second Sunday of Advent, as Ray mentioned. And, and the Advent has this way of playing with our notions of time. Last week, what happened is, is we started the series hearing from the full-grown Jesus, saying that you need to prepare yourself for my return. Which seemed odd, because like I said, most of us at the start of Advent, we want a Christmas card. Or we want a, um, well, we want Christmas cards certainly around this time. But we also want baby announcements. We want to be invited to this birth. We want to find this, this baby here in this manger. That's what it's about, right? But what actually what the church is trying to hold together for us is this tension between awaiting Christ's return as well as sort of anticipating his first birth, his first coming among us. And so it's that tension we try to hold, which is why it sort of messes with time. Here we hear this is Zechariah's song, praise for after a silence with John the Baptist. But we've jumped Mary's song. We've jumped Mary and Elizabeth meeting, which we'll get to. But it has a way of sort of messing with our sense of time. But as I joke with people, is I'm not super worried about the war on Christmas. Is I'm more worried about the war on Advent. Because Christmas is technically, to, for, for Christians who celebrate that way, the 12 days after Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation on Christmas Eve. And what that does is it kicks off a 12-day feast. Not a 12-day hangover from all the joy of, of one day sort of building up this whole month, but it kicks off a 12-day feast of celebrating that Christ has come amongst us. And so we kind of, in our culture, we've reversed that, helpfully and unhelpfully, is that, you know, 12 days is the 12 days before Christmas, but we're already going nuts from Thanksgiving and Halloween. We haven't had a break for a while. Um, and really what it's about is finding this time to pause and to think of what it means to be Christ with us, that God came and took up residency in the world. That's what that celebration is about. But the first one is about that tension between Christ coming back and us preparing ourselves for the celebration of his birth, of his incarnation. So that's what we're slowly starting to build towards here. As I joke, this is probably the last Sunday I can get away with pushing back on Christmas songs. Next Sunday, I'm sure we'll have more. Um, it's probably the last Sunday I can get away. We have poinsettias, uh, but we kept the red ones out. We'll have the red ones next week. And so what we like to do is build towards this grand feast. We'll add more lights. And so on Christmas Eve, and this is part of this reading for today, is this is Advent is born in darkness. Advent starts in darkness. And what happens is the light of Christ comes into the world. This is the last part of Zechariah's song, is that it starts in this darkness. And so what we, we try to do here is, as best as one pastor can fight against many people ready for Christmas, is, uh, is to hold off on some of the celebration and to build space of anticipation into our lives for this. So to start the Sunday sermon, we talked about prophets and praise. Uh, the, the second passage Ray read for us from, from um Malachi. I've got Micah stuck in my head for some reason. I'm like, Micah, Malachi, Micah, Malachi, about preparing the way. It's this prophecy for John that one will go before the Messiah and pair the way, uh, prepare the way. And so this next two Sundays will sort of sit with John the Baptist's presence. But in this Sunday, we sit with it sort of through the song of Zechariah, this sort of benediction that he proclaims into the world. And one of the things that's going on at the start of Luke's gospel is if you if you look at this image, is what's happening is, is he's pulling together all these themes throughout the Old Testament, each one of these being a different theme, and bringing them to one point in Jesus. He's, he's pulling together all these themes built up in the Old Testament, all these notions of rescue, of deliverance, of forgiveness of sins, of a new kingdom, of a son of David, 
of someone who prepares the way, of a new Elijah coming. All these things sort of are getting pulled together at the start of Luke's gospel in so many different strings, and they're coming to one point. Now, what's interesting about this first is that what happens here is that um, this is going on all the time with Jewish people in the first century. They're all trying to say, how are all these streams of the mighty work that God is going to do going to come to a head, going to come to a point? And so as some of us are familiar with, there's this one stream in the, in the ancient modern world that sort of, they spin it out towards that we will come, he will come, and we will rule over our conquerors, and they will be sort of below us. And that God's plan to set things right is to put us back on top as Jews. God is going to come and restore our kingdom and just make life better for us. That is one way that people are trying to sum up these streams at the moment. And so there's all these sort of different images from the Old Testament of what does it mean when God's reconciliation and fullness and life and victory comes into the world. What Luke, more than most of the gospel writers, is trying to do in his prologue is try to tie these things together so that we can see the birth of Jesus as, as the beginning of this new thing as well, as the start of this new thing that's sort of beginning in this place. And so it's, it's almost like the old covenant is coming together to make this one thing, and out of that is something new is going to be born. But as you know, that there's no way that the, that the one point doesn't come without the old before it. It sort of is all tied together. And so this is, this is a quote from St. Augustine. I'll read it out loud. It's not that small, um, but it's two slides. But I think he has a great way of capturing what's going on here. He says, John is born of an old woman who is barren. Christ is born of a young woman who is a virgin. That John will be born is not believed, and his father is struck dumb. This is what happens to Zechariah, by the way, we'll get to that. That Christ will be born is believed by Mary, and he is conceived by faith. John, it seems, has been inserted as a kind of boundary between the two testaments, the old and the new. That he is somehow or other a boundary is something that the Lord himself indicates when he says the law and the prophets were until John. So he represents the old and heralds the new. Because he represents the old, he is born of an elderly couple. Because he represents the new, he is revealed as a prophet in his mother's womb. You will remember that before he was born at Mary's arrival, he leapt in his mother's room. This is, he's talking about Jesus. Already he had been marked out there, designated before he was born. It was already shown whose forerunner he would be, even before he saw him. There are divine matters and exceed the measure of human frailty. Finally, he is born, he receives a name, and his father's tongue is loosened. Zechariah goes from not speaking to speaking. Zechariah is struck down and he loses his voice until John, the forerunner, is born, and he releases his voice for him. What does Zechariah's silence mean other than the, prophet was, the prophecy was obscured, and before the proclamation of Christ somehow concealed and shut up? It is released and opened by his arrival. It becomes clear when the one who is being prophesied is about to come. The releasing of Zechariah's voice at the birth of John has the same significance as the tearing of the temple at the crucifixion of Christ. If John were meant to proclaim himself, he would not be open Zechariah's mouth. The tongue is released because the voice is being born. For when John was already heralding the Lord, he was asked, Who are you? And he replied, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John is the voice, but the Lord in the beginning was the word. John is the voice for a time, but Christ is the eternal word from the beginning. 
St. Augustine in the 4th century is writing to pull together this notion of what's happening in John. Because John, as we'll see, he, he, he wears himself as an Old Testament-style prophet, too. He's sort of defined by the angel who visits Zechariah as, as an Elijah come again. This is a question people have in the Gospels. So what happens is, in, in Augustine's mind, is that he's building the bridge between these two stories. The story of what God has faithfully done in Israel's history and how God's going to tie it all back together in Jesus. And so he becomes the forerunner of this. Now it's probably worth pausing to, for a second to say that John is kind of a big deal. It's just, uh, I, I watched too much Anchorman at one point. You don't know John, but he's kind of a big deal. Because we don't know John in the way that he is kind of a big deal. If you think about it, is Christians love Christmas. We celebrate Christmas every year. But only one, two Gospels give us the most of that material. Whereas John has a pivotal role in all four Gospels. John the Baptist is preserved in each way. The virgin birth is really only preserved in two. The nativity scene we all love is really only in Luke. And so what happens is, is John is this really big deal in the first century. And one of the thing, reasons why he's a really big deal in the way that he isn't a really big deal to us is because there are disciples of John who have not left to follow Christ after the death and resurrection. There are people who still think John was the one. John, as the summary of all the Old Testament prophets, is the one who we should follow. John represents the fullness of what God is going to do, not Jesus. And so what happens here in these scenes where John is preserved almost throughout all of the Gospels is they're trying to show where John points people to Christ, where John's sort of vision is being made, where John sort of is the one who's not different than Christ, but he's the one who prepares the way, he makes a path, he points that direction, that John is the arrow that is giving us the future that we have in Christ, not the thing himself. So John is kind of a big deal. He has this special birth in this gospel like Jesus. As, as, as that quote we read said, is that he's born of an elderly couple that thinks they're barren. Now here's the part I love about this story. Zechariah and Elizabeth are both old, and it says that they're pious people. They're people who lived blamelessly according to the law, which is quite the statement for this couple. And yet they are barren. And, and in the ancient Near East, to be barren is is to have no future, is to have no fruit, is to be sort of this way. And yet, what the Bible still says of them, and, and they know this, this partially comes from one of these streams here, what the Bible says of them is that they were still faithful in their practice. They still showed up every day. They're past the age of having children, having what sort of the future means in this world, and yet they still come to church every Sunday. They still practice their, their religion. They still live faithfully, even though there doesn't seem to have been a lot in it for them. And so what happens is one Sunday, Zechariah is chosen to be the one as, as sort of one of these priests, and this would only happen to him maybe once, possibly twice in his life, to sort of go in and light the altar of, of incense. And what happens is, is an angel appears to him there. All the people are outside praying, praying their own prayers, praying for God's deliverance and rescue, praying for new life. They're all praying for forgiveness of sins. They're all praying for something, all these people. They're bringing all their concerns to the forefront. And Zechariah goes in as the emissary to them. And what the angel says to them is, I've, God has heard your prayers, and they're about to be answered. It's a powerful moment. 
Because whose prayer is, is God and angel hearing? Somehow, the prayers of the people all gathered out in front are bound up in God's prayer, in, Je in Zechariah's prayer, to have a child. So what God says to him, was, is, or what the angel says to him, is that the Lord has heard your prayers and that a child will be born to you. Now, Zechariah's response is, 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 sort of, is this, basically. How? How is that going to happen? Both me and my wife are old. We're beyond childbearing years. How are we going to have a child now? Now, I think for you to think about this helpfully is to think about what in your life could, could happen in the next six months that you've closed off the reality to. Yes, I know it's nine months, but, but for, it's helpful for us to just pick an analogy. What in the next six months is it like I've closed off for myself that promotion at work? I've closed off for myself the idea that reconciliation will happen with this party. I've closed off for myself that, that I'll find life in this avenue or this vein. I've closed off for myself that my house will sell, that I'll be able to move into a new life. That, that all these things I've closed out, off for myself. And what happens is, is an angel appears to you as you just come to church one Sunday, you light the Advent candle, and it says the possibility that you've shut yourself off to is now going to be See, some things we let die. We think they're no longer going to be there. This is never going to happen. And God has this way, and, and, and Zechariah would know this, with Abraham and Sarah, of saying the possibilities that you've closed off to yourself, God can open again. And so God says that I'm going to open this possibility up for you. And his question is, how is that going to happen? He knows these stories, right? He knows how it's going to happen. He knows that it can happen. But the thing is, I think it displays for us sort of a functional atheism that we have in ourselves. Is I better get ready making these plans, preparing this future? Because who can really count on God to do that? I better be making the world this kind of place. I better be setting up my house this way. I better be preparing for, for this kind of retirement, which you know we all do. But I better be making the future secure for myself. Because at the end of the day, I don't really expect God to make that future secure for me. Is that we have this way of doing it, and we do it in all sorts of ways. We do it through, um, it, part of Zechariah's song has to do with politics, a national identity, right? We prepare to make the kingdom of God come here on earth because we're not sure God's going to make the kingdom of God here on earth himself. Which again, isn't our job. God makes the kingdom and so we prepare all these ways to sort of cut ourselves off from the hope that we're supposed to have in us. Zechariah, like many of us, has probably tried to secure his own future. And yet now all he can name is how. How will this happen? How will this be? And it names sort of the ways in which we can go through the religious points of our lives and miss it. This is funny for me because as a pastor, people will say to me, you know, I'm really struggling with this with my brother, my sister, um, interpersonal thing and they'll say you believe in miracles could you pray for me and i'm like yes yes i do believe in miracles like they they call me out on something that i even let go dormant in my own life like yes i do believe that god can solve this problem but for some reason even i can grow numb to it over time like well here's what i would say is here's how it'll get better you need to do this they need to do that meet together and so i help plan their future for them that can make this happen rather than trust that God has a way to make this happen. And I don't think those are meant to be exclusive things, right? 
They're not meant to be, don't do anything yourself, God will make it happen. It's meant to say that, be prepared for the ways that God will show up. Don't think it's all in your hands, right? I'm not saying don't plan for retirement. I'm not saying don't plan ways to find reconciliation with parents or children that you've been alienated from. What I'm saying is prepare that God will make the way and path. It's not all up to you to make God's kingdom come here on earth, but that God is still active in the story. And so what happens because of his disbelief, he struck mute for the next, mute and deaf in the, in the Greek word, for the next um, nine months as she prepares to have child. Elizabeth herself goes into hiding for five months, because this is an odd thing to have happened for both of them. And so they go into this hiding, and what happens is, is the story that we read for today comes back from when John is born, and he's being presented. And they're like, what shall we name this child? The angels disclose to them that they shall name him John. And Elizabeth says that well, his name is John, we're going to name him John. And they're like, the people surrounded him were like, well, John is not a name in your family, which is important at this time. This is in many ways a miraculous child. Don't you think it should be named after the father, the grandfather, somebody in this lineage? Because something here has happened that doesn't normally happen. And so they go to Zechariah and motion to him, get his attention, hand him something to write down. And what he doesn't write down is, is that, you know, we've decided to name him John. He doesn't write down that, like, John, it would be a good name. John is fitting. John is fine. He writes down his name is John, as if this name has already been given before. Zechariah, in his nine months of silence, has had a lot of time to think about what's happening. His name is John, is what he writes down. It's a profound act of faith to sort of distrust that. So the people ask, who will this child be? But what happens in, in sort of his name is John is, is Zechariah's tongue and ears are loosened and he begins to be able to hear and speak again. And so what Ray and Kim read for us today in two separate versions today is what he composes from that. It's a beautiful sort of poem and praise and song. As I've noted is that this, this is a time when we sing together. And so this is a time when people sing too, when this new birth, this new life is about to happen. That this thing is about to come. His name is John, which means God is gracious. And so he sings a song of what God is going to do. The song he sings begins, starts with um, this Greek word, which is epistepikeptomai. Uh, yes, I practiced it. Epistepikeptomai, which if I had studied since I took Greek, I would be able to do that. I just had to copy it off. Um, but this word, it's a big word, and in most of our translations, it's not even translated visit, right? But it appears both in this time, in this letter. It's, it's that God has visited us at the start, and that God's light is going to visit us at the end. Now, visit is kind of a passive word for us, too. And the ways that this is translated in other parts of the New Testament is, is that God is going to come and bring comfort. God is going to come. It's almost like somebody who's coming to care for you. And so that the word is much bigger than our word visit, I think it helps us see that what is meant in this visit that God is going to bring to us is something of good news. See, we have this, um, this character in our culture we call Santa Claus. And when he comes to visit, you want to make sure you're naughty or nice. Um, well, you want to make sure you're nice. <laughs> you don't want to be the one. But, but what happens is, is actually what's bound up in this is not a visit that's like, you're going to see what's happening to you. Did it all add up? Are you on the good side this year? 
This visit actually connotates that, that good things are going to come, that care is going to come. Now that's easy to compare it with Santa Claus, but I do think, what do we think of the visit that God is going to come to us? Because I think there's a lot in my life that I think proclaims that when God's coming, I hope that that visit is going to be good. Not that I trust that that visit is going to be good. See, Zechariah proclaims it in a way that we can trust as God's people that that visit is going to be good news. That God's visit to us is not going to be an accounting of all that you've done, a reading of a role so that you can add it all up and say, good enough or not good enough. Yet, spiritual life can get reduced to that. And what he proclaims is this visit is this deliverance, this forgiveness of sins, and this restoration of a people. He proclaims both an earthly and a spiritual realm. He proclaims these 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 different streams that are being pulled together. He's pulling all these together in his proclamation here, is that God's going to set up this kingdom. God's going to do this. God's going to deliver us in these ways. All these things are pulled together, but they're weighted in the way to say that this is good news for us, that God has raised up this horn of salvation. This horn of salvation, which he, he's, he's anticipating in Jesus, is this um, powerful one who's been said of the prophets from long ago, he's going to remember his promises to Abraham. He's going to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and enable to serve him without fear. It's a powerful song. There's a reason why this is sung in many prayer services. The Benedictus is, is this phrase is, is sort of powered up or, or brought into daily life to sort of say that God is releasing us from the things that keep us in fear. God is releasing us from thinking that, that this is a fearful visit, but releasing for us the good news that his son is coming. And he says, and this is, this is the odd part about it, if you're John, the one who's a big deal, is that this song is more about Jesus, his cousin, than it is about his son. He says that you, my son, will go to prepare the way for him. But what will happen through him is this forgiveness of sins, that you um, to, to give his people the knowledge of salvation to the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising of the sun will come to us from heaven and to, sh- and, and to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our, ha- our ways into the ha- peace. Uh, sorry, doing four things at once. <laughs> Never goes well, um, as many people do during Christmas. Um, sit in death. This is the first thing he describes, that people are sitting in death and darkness at the end of this sort of poem that he proclaims. And what this means in its context is, is sort of, there's these people moving in this caravan to some place. And what happens is a great darkness overcomes them. And they're exposed to the threat of sort of, of, of wildlife, exposed to the threat of an oncoming army, exposing to the threats of, of um, disease, lack of water, all these things. A darkness sort of comes and engulfs these people who are trying to move somewhere. Death overcomes them. Now, third, the hearers of Luke, this happens in two ways. First off, it says towards the beginning of the story that in the time of King Herod, which if you're of a certain mind, you're like, yay, Christmas story. <laughs> yes, yeah, also crucifixion. Herod was there too. Um, 
in the time of Herod, it begins. But if you're a first century Jew, if you're a first century Christian, in the time of Herod means in the time of death and great violence. In the time of darkness with a powerful enemy over us. In the time of not a benevolent ruler, but a, a wicked one. But if you're a first century Christian, too, you would also know of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, most likely, when you're reading the Gospel of Luke. A holy war breaks out in Jerusalem. And the temple, the temple which is the site of where Zechariah receives this war, which is the, the place and the culmination of Israel's dreams, that too is destroyed by Rome. You live in a world of violence and death. Now here's, here's the hard part, is that this world is the world we live in. What John, or Zechariah narrates for us in his song, is that, that people live in a world of violence and death. We, in our world, can push and shelve it off. We, in our world, can hide from it. We, in our world, can build homes at the margins of society so nobody dies near us. They all die far from us. We can, we can fight battles and wars far from our shore um, so that that violence never touches home. We can move to a different part of the city. We can move to a different town. We can move to a better school district. We can continually try to do this, but that we still live in this world of violence and death. See, we try to move around in the darkness, perhaps, more than we should. If you're lost in the wilderness, Mike, you know this. If you're lost in the wilderness, what do they tell you to do? Consult with GPS. Yeah. <laughs> Aside from that, stay still, right? Yeah, because you're going to walk off a cliff. See, in our movement, an inability to sit in the darkness. I said, Advent is born of darkness. We await the coming of the light in Jesus Christ. We await the light of the world that comes to us. We can find the ways in which we cannot have to deal with this fact. But it is a fact of our lives. And so what it says is, is, that, is that this light comes to guide us in peace. What's the exact phrase? Sorry. Um, to guide our feet into the path of peace. It's the rising of the sun. It's the birth of a new day that comes in Jesus Christ. And so what it does is it enables your feet to move again. See, if you read too fast, you missed that you sat in darkness. But when the light of Christ begins to shine again, you begin to be able to move on your feet into the paths of peace. See, Luke is pulling all these things together. Zechariah, in his time of silence, is the time to write a mighty song that pulls all these things together. And for us, it remains to be able to see how is it we sit in death? How is it we sit denying the world that we live in? And what does it mean, then, that the light has begun to come on? That the rising of the sun is happening. See, that's, that's another one of those phrases, that God visits us again in the rising of the sun. This is a season, this is a time, where we cherish that visit. We know of that visit. God has visited us, and God will visit us again. And so it puts us in between the poles of looking forwards and backwards, much like Zechariah. God's faithfulness in the past and the ways that we innate that light in the future.
Let us pray.